This is Standing Firm, and our theme verse is 1 Peter 3, 15. Can we say this together? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the chance to gather this morning for each that's out. We're thankful, Lord, for your day, God's day. And Lord, on the way in, we drove past a lot of people, no doubt, that they're just oblivious. God, we, we feel sorry because they're missing out on the love of Jesus Christ, the excitement of fellowship and building up that happens in a place like this and, and rejoicing together about gospel truths. And, and Lord, we pray that you'd give us a burden for our neighbors as we go by them and they're just rubbing their eyes and they're waking up and they're figuring out what movies they're going to watch or what they're going to get done or whose party they're going to go to or uh, just Lord I pray that they would make time for you Father for this is the greatest of all joys is preparing not for this world but the world to come. Bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, here's where we're going. Um, we talked about this last week. We've got some new folks. So just very briefly, Pastor Jonathan introduced this series uh, with the What and Why of Apologetics. And we slid into last week our scientific challenges section by giving you some answers for atheists. Today we'll talk about creation in the schools. Next week, God willing, we'll be here talking about missing links in evolution. And uh, then early earth, Eden or ape men, faith, flood, and fossils. Then Pastor Jonathan is back again with, is Christian belief rational? And what about other religions and the problem of evil? Is it rational to believe in miracles? Then I'm going to pick up with evidence the Bible is God's word. And then Pastor Jonathan will conclude it. So that's kind of our roadmap in our apologetics session. Now, our topic this morning, should creation be taught in the public schools? And some of you might think, well, that's uh, not a terribly hard question to answer. But I've talked to a lot of people that say, well, no, we shouldn't be throwing our pearls before swines. And that's not the forum for it. Others will say, well, I wouldn't want the Muslim imam coming in and kind of doing his thing in the public schools on our tax dime. And so uh, I get different opinions uh, by folks. So a quick show of hands just to make sure everybody's awake out there. How many say, yes, creation should be taught in the schools? How many say, no, I don't think it should be, not in the public schools? Okay, we've got a lot of folks that just aren't willing to commit one way or the other. That's all right. We'll hopefully catch you to come down on one side or the other by the time we're done. How many of you guys, when you went to school, had biology class? Lady, and she's going to want to know everything about you. 
And so the frog, he was said to the voice, what am I going to hear? And the fairy godmother said, in her second semester biology class. <laughs> so sometimes you're better off not know the rest of the story. Uh, but today we're going to dive into the rest of the story and we're going to hopefully answer this question, should creation be taught in the public schools? Now the Bible warns about something I'm going to call pseudoscience. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, the Bible says, Keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. There are things that pass under the realm of science, under the guise of science, that are not real science. They're science falsely so-called. Uh, Brian, I don't think I have my lapel mic up. I think it's just the pulpit mic, because I know when I'm coming here, I've got it on and, it, and it's juiced up, but I don't think the mic, the volume's up on it, so I, I don't know what the issue is. Um, I'm a loud mouth anyway. Oh, there we go. No, we're on. Great. Uh, do I need that little recording machine too, or you got me, you got me going? Okay, great. Thank you, Brian. Uh, so we need to be careful about pseudoscience, that which would be passing off, and this is that Greek world word gnosis, knowledge. So it's passing off as kind of a sure knowledge, and yet it's not. It's speculation, it's maybe metaphysical uh, uh, conjecture, uh, it's just tradition, it's, it's, it's wild surmisings, but it's not science, it's not knowledge. And, and the Bible warned about it even in the time of the Apostle Paul. Well, here's our outline where we're going this morning. We're talk about the history of the controversy, limitations of science, and the two-model approach. That's our outline this morning. So some of the background. How do we get to this point where our public schools are ground zero in the origins debate and children are kind of like the cannon fodder here in, 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 this, uh, in this argument about creation versus evolution? Well, science really started off back in the beginning in Genesis. Some people, when they hear me talk about problems with science and evolution, they think, well, maybe you're just down on science. I, I love science. I really do. I'm conducting a scientific experiment in my barn right now uh, and had a bunch of school students out to look at it, and I love science. <clears throat> I have problems with pseudoscience, but no, I actually believe science was commanded by God right from the beginning, to Adam and Eve in the uh, command to subdue the earth. Sometimes it's called the dominion mandate. In Genesis 1.28, God said, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That doesn't mean abuse it. That doesn't mean, you know, make it uh, a, a nasty mess. But it does mean to bring it into control. Maybe I could illustrate this way. Let's say that we had a corral out back here, and we had a number of wild horses that have not been broken. Nobody's ever ridden them. And I say, I'm looking for some volunteers to get on some of these wild bucking broncos. Does anybody want to ride them? Now, I wouldn't want to ride them. I'm going to break my neck, right? I'm going to fall off, go flying through the air, I'm going to kill myself. But there may be somebody here. We, we get this nice visitor from Texas. Now, maybe, maybe you can ride horses. You know, it's good to have Trish here. But I don't know what I'm doing. But there are people that know what they're doing. They know how to approach the horse just the right way, how to talk to him, where to touch that horse, and then suddenly swing themselves up there onto the horse's back, and the horse is going to go bananas, and they know how to balance their hand, right? You know, you've seen this type of thing, right? And they know how to subdue that horse. And that's the picture of what God's commanding to take the wild forces of nature and bring them into order and use them and order and structure things profitably and productively. That's the real 
uh, purpose of science. And obviously we see in Genesis tremendous scientific advances. You're looking at just a few generations down from Adam, you've got a civilization. Ada, Bear, Jabel, he was the father of such as dwell in tents and has cattle. So here's a guy specializing in agriculture. His brother's name was Jubal and he was the father of such as handle the harp and the organ. So here's a guy who can now specialize in music. Basic needs are met and so you've got somebody that's able to specialize in, in musical entertainment. Zillah, she also bared Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Now, now, folks, listen, if we lost all of our technology and just, you know, we were just totally starting from ground zero, hunter-gatherer, do you know how long it take us to be able to smelt ores? That's amazing scientific progress in a few generations. That's incredible. And so do you think about these guys as being kind of these beetle-browed, you know, cavemen? No way, these guys are brilliant. And of course, they're living for hundreds of years too. So science began to progress very rapidly. Now I'm going to skip through the science. We could talk about Egypt, we could talk about the pyramids, we could talk about Babylon, we could talk about the Great Walls, we could talk about the Greeks and their civilizations and, and, and all the way up through. But I'm going to just jump up to the modern scientific revolution that happened in the Middle Ages. And if we look at the great classical scientists that started the modern scientific movement, they were creationists. Most were Christians, but they were creationists. People like Ray Linnaeus in biology and Galileo in astronomy and Kelvin in physics and Cuvier in, in geology and Robert Boyle in chemistry. These are the guys you learn about in the textbooks that started it. Brilliant guys. Massively moved the ball forward and started these various disciplines in the scientific world. They might say, well, Dave, what's, what's the point of that? The point is evolutionists will say, oh, we can't teach creation in the schools. That'll set science back 200 years. People believe in God creating. You might as well just start teaching about pink fairies and, you know, teaching that uh, uh, gremlins are real and all kinds of silliness. No, no, we, got, we can't have that. And, and I said, no, hang on a minute. The folks that started the good ship science were all creationists. The evolutionists have had pitifully little. I mean, what scientific breakthrough has evolution given us? See? It was really, it came out of that Christian worldview that you have modern science. Here are some quotes. They see if you, these people sound like atheists to you. Here's Michael Faraday, a crazy, uh, brilliant physicist. He says, where the word of God has sounded, there his people are drawn together to the obedience of all things that Christ has commanded. Here's Johannes Kepler. I love this quote. The chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God, which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. Does he sound like an atheist to you? I like that definition of science. Sir Isaac Newton, gravity, calculus, right? He wrote this most beautiful system of the sun, the planets, the comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as the Lord over all. The supreme God is a being eternal, infinite, absolutely perfect. Nicholas Copernicus, he kind of uh, really worked out the Copernican model of how the earth goes around the sun and, and uh, a lot of the uh, cosmology there. 
And he was motivated to comprehend the mechanism of the universe wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator, the system the best and most orderly artist of all framed for our sake. Paley. William Paley is kind of, he's a key figure in the whole origins debate. He wrote a book in 1839. Now, when Darwin went to school, Darwin went to theology school and studied Paley. And if you actually read Darwin's book, Origin of the Species, 1859, his book is really a kind of point-by-point -point refutation of Paley. So these two guys were really big, right? I mean, Paley and Darwin. And if you go back and read their original works, which I have done, you'd be amazed at how much the arguments haven't changed. They're still the same arguments as they were back in late 1800s, mid-1800s. For example, Paley's saying, well, there's too much design. It couldn't happen by chance. And he, he, he was the first to use this watch analogy. Maybe you've, you've, you've heard this metaphor. Let's say we're walking down the shore and we're seeing things like stones and driftwood and sand and, and flotsam and jetsam. And then all of a sudden we come upon a thing here. We don't know what it is. It's circular and it goes tick, 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 tick. And it's got a little spot you can wind in. We open it up and look, it's got something there that's kind of moving with time. And we, we don't know what it is, but inherently we know there's something different about it than the stones and the driftwood. And he says, the inference we think is inevitable, watch must have had a maker. And he uses that then as a metaphor to talk about the great designs in biology. And of course, that's what Darwin tried to uh, resolve was the design argument. And, and so in the 1800s, you have to understand, was a time of turmoil. You had the anarchy of the French Revolution. You had Freudian psychology coming in. The start of communism. Uh, uh, Karl Marx, Das Kapital. Erasmus Darwin, who is Charlie's grandpapa, he had already written a book on evolution called Zoonomia. So Darwin, you know, was not... He, he, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Darwin was a man of his time. And, and really, Darwin was more of a catalyst than an originator. Uh, he, he, had, he had imbibed heavily in a lot of this stuff that was happening in the 1800s. You ever wonder where we get this idea of millions and millions of years from? Where'd that come in? This guy named Charles Lyell. Interesting enough, Charles Lyell wasn't a geologist. He wasn't even a scientist, per se. He was a lawyer. But he's a brilliant lawyer. And he, he, as a naturalist, he did some studying in, in, the, in the world around about him. And he had an agenda. His stated goal was to free the science from Moses. What's that mean? Hmm? What do you think he meant by that? Anti-miracle? Anti A little bit. But what particularly about Moses would be influencing science that he wanted to end? Yes. Okay, you're close. The laws of nature, right? What do we read about in the books of Moses, particularly in Genesis? Creation is one thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then one other thing. The law. Okay, before the law, huh? Before the Ten Commandments, think about geology. Flood. Who said flood? Gold star. This guy wanted the flood out of geology. See, before him, they'd look at something like the Grand Canyon, and they'd say, wow, 
catastrophe. I mean, massive catastrophe to dig away this whole thing. And what he wanted to do was not think in terms of the flood and big catastrophes, but to think in terms of big ages. And he says, no, no, we don't need big catastrophes. That Colorado River, one little sand of grain at a time, could over enough time, over millions of years, erode through this solid rock and make this great canyon. Natural processes, just like we see today, not some catastrophe, over long periods can do this. And so that was him. Now, here's Charles Darwin, age 22. He gets on board the HMS Beagle as a naturalist. He takes two books with him. One of the books he takes is his Bible, because he's a theology student. He's graduated. But then he takes this new book by Charles Lyell, uh, Principles of Geology. We don't know if he cracked his Bible, but we know that Charles Lyell's book would change his life. And as he was going about on the Beagle and he was imbibing these ideas of millions of years of geology, he began to think, well, what about millions of years? How would that impact biology? What could that do in one kind of a species over that much time? And he was a pretty astute naturalist and he liked, he was a pigeon fancier. He worked with pigeons and he also bred orchids at one time or he grew orchids. Uh, and so he would see how as a pigeon fancier, just some human selection of certain traits could dramatically change all pigeons to be all kinds of colors and shapes and weird head things and stuff like this. Well, what could that, if nature were selecting over periods of millions of years? And so you would had these different theories of evolution kind of swirling around, one of the theories of evolution that was already active before Darwin started his research was a theory called evolution by acquired traits by a guy by the name of Lamarck. And Lamarck, for example, tried to explain why a giraffe has this ridiculously long neck. And you may have, you may have heard or read about this, but his theory was this. Well, originally the giraffe had a short neck like a, a horse. But then all the giraffes ate all the leaves at a certain level and they had to stretch their necks up a little bit. And because of that, their children were born with longer necks and then they ate all the leaves at that level and so they had to really stretch and then their children are born with longer necks and over multiple generations you got these crazy long necks because they had to, to get the leaves, right? Now what's the problem with that? Huh? It's, who said that? Gold star for you. <laughs> Genetics, it's not, if, if I get my arm blown off in a war, does my children have only one arm? If I am a smith and all the time I'm sitting there and I'm pounding that anvil, you know, the hammer, you know, and the one hand does get longer, the arm gets longer, than the other. do my kids get born with a longer arm than the other? See, these are changes to the somatic cells. You've got to have changes to the egg and the sperm, the genetics, to get passed on to the next generation. So there's a scientific problem with this. It doesn't work, right? So this theory was rejected. But they were trying. They were you know, banging around looking for a theory of evolution. And then Darwin came along with his idea, which was natural selection. And just to give you a quick primer on Darwin's theory, I'm just going to summarize it with four quick points here. Overproduction. Now we've seen this, no doubt, you've seen cats or rabbits. When I was a kid, we kept rabbits for a while. My dad kept rabbits. And you know, you start with two, and then it's four, and then it's eight, and it starts to go crazy. And you know, we were keeping rabbits to eat them. And I, honestly, if I never eat rabbit again for the rest of my life, I'll be so happy. My mom would eat fricasseed rabbits, and broiled rabbits, and fried rabbits, and stewed rabbits. And I mean, we couldn't keep up. And finally, we just we were like on our knees begging my dad, please, no more rabbits. 
And, and so we all agree. So we got all the blue rabbits over here on this side and all the pink rabbits over on that side, right? And there the twain shall meet. And then lo and behold, one of the blue rabbits is pregnant. Like, ah. It's more rabbits. Uh, Freezer's full of rabbits. So, but uh, Darwin observed that a lot of animals will produce more than is required just to replace their parents, overproduction. But then also amongst the offspring, you're going to have some, you know, some brown, some gray, some white, you're going to have variation. And then nature can tinker with this. And maybe uh, if winters get a little harder or this rabbit population is kind of moving towards the Arctic Circle with a lot more snow, maybe nature will select the white ones. And so you, you look at in the Arctic Circle, you got white bears, the polar bears, you got uh, white uh, birds and white uh, uh, rabbits and wh everything's white. Because it's a benefit if you're either hiding from you know, predators or you're chasing prey, either way it's a benefit to be white, right? And so nature can select this thing. And then uh, the, the, the fittest type can survive, will out-survive, and so the brown and the grays will kind of get weeded out and just the white ones will be there and the whole population will shift. <laughs> now, as far as these four basic points go, I don't have a big problem with it, really, as creationists. Because at the end of the day, it's still rabbits, right? See, we have a problem with cats having certain colors or longer hair, shorter hair, whatever. Maybe they survive a little better, you know, could be. But when we have cats, we have dogs, we're okay. It's when we have the dats and cogs, that's the problem, right? That's what we don't see scientifically. So uh, jumping back into our history here, Darwin was a catalyst. He's a symbol more than an originator. And really then certain folks that were just hardcore took it and ran with it. Like Huxley. Huxley was called Darwin's bulldog. He was not nearly as careful and, and, and uh, uh, rigorous as Darwin. And he was just sporting for a fight. He was the first agnostic. He coined the term. He'd come to town. He wanted to debate somebody. Let's, let's, let's have a debate. And he was going to you know, argue against design, argue against creation, argue against God. And so he's Thomas Huxley. And then in those days, if you were perceived as being anti-church or anti-God, it was hard to get you know, your theory to have much credibility or audience. And so the fact that a reverend, this guy, Charles Kingsley, came out and endorsed evolution, a man of the cloth, was real important. So he was pretty key also in the early days to sell the gospel of evolution. So these two guys, Huxley and Kingsley, uh, really helped to the spread of it. Now let's fast forward to today. We're all these many years later, and uh, the tree of evolution has grown up. The Bible says, by their fruits ye shall know them. What kind of fruit has this tree of evolution borne? Well, we've got things like atheism, relativism, eugenics, communism, racism, humanism. I do this talk in public schools and public universities. I, I wouldn't have the Bible verse up top. But invariably, I'm, I look out at an audience and I can tell right away they're saying in their minds, you're crazy. We had racism long before Grandpa Darwin came along. We would have had it if Grandpa Darwin didn't come along. You know, you going to pin all this stuff on Charlie? Really? I mean, we had a lot of bad stuff long before evolution came along, right? So I want to be very careful here. And, and, and what I want to tell you is that many of the extremes of these things from the 20th century can get traced right back to some of the theories of evolution that became in vogue in the late 1800s. 
And what happened was Charles Darwin poured gasoline on a lot of stuff and gave scientific credibility to a lot of the racism, communism, some of the, some of the real terrible things that happened in the 20th century really got scientific justification and credibility and were exasperated to a tremendous degree because of evolutionary theory. And I want to back that up. Because some of us folks say, well, Christianity is terrible. What about the Crusades? Okay, can you tell me somewhere in the Bible where Jesus says we're supposed to go on a crusade and go out and just wipe out all the Muslims? If you can show me that, then you can pin that on Christianity. Because people do bad stuff all the time, right? But I want to show you where actual quotes of Charles Darwin and his buddies, that this is where their theory was going right from the beginning. So I'm going to try to prove my case here right now. Here's a quote from Charles Darwin. The chief distinction of the intellectual powers of the two sexes is shown by man's attaining to a higher eminence. The average of mental power in a man must be above that of a woman. How do you ladies like that? A wee bit sexist, would you say? They like this when I go through this in public school. Here's Thomas Huxley, Charles Charwin's bulldog, right? No rational man, cognizant of the facts, believes that the average Negro is the equal, still less the superior of the white man. I hope you find that highly offensive, disgusting racism by Thomas Huxley. Here's Ernst Haeckel, the leading evolutionist at that time in Germany, uh, welcomed very much by Darwin uh, for his support of evolution. He says, I consider the Negro to be a lower species of man. Cannot make up my mind to look upon him as a man and a brother, for the gorilla would also have to be admitted into the family. Here is a picture from, Tom, uh, from Ernst Haeckel's book, and this, of course, German, but chimpanzee, gorilla, orangutan, and here's this black person, this uh, African, and, and there he is on the, on the branch of evolution, the lower step in evolutionary theory. Here's the Reverend Charles Kingsley. Remember, he helped sell evolution by making it more respectable as a man of the cloth. The black people of Australia, he says, exactly the same race as African Negro, cannot take in the gospel. Poor brutes in human shape, they must perish off the face of the earth like brute beasts. This guy is a reverend. And he basically saying that people that have a slightly different melanin in their skin color are animals. Got real quiet in here. I did this presentation in Africa. And the students at Central African Bible College with Phil Hunt and some of our missionaries that we support down there were absolutely amazed. They said, yeah, we know about slavery. We get that. I mean, Africans have enslaved other Africans, and it's a power play, and, you know, we try to enslave people and stuff like that. But, but did they really, they really thought we were just animals? Yeah. That's how they thought. We can treat them however we want because, well, evolutionists taught us that they're just animals. They don't even have a soul. Man, that's just the craziest thing. I, I, I do talks places. I'm like, you know, you got white here, right, brother? Let me. I mean, this is this is white. Bar your 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 paper. Am I white? That's white, right? I mean, other folks are are dark, but they're not black. I mean, it's just differences in melanin expression, right? It's just different varieties of tan. That's all it is. And for that, they don't have a soul. That's how they thought. 
And so you wonder why uh, slavery literally shot up like a rocket in the late 1800s, and it was okay to go over and, and just catch them like you'd catch animals, and pack them like you'd pack animals onto boats, and then bring them across and sell them like you'd sell property. Well, evolution had given justification for that. This is a guy named Stephen Jay Gould. He was probably the second most leading evolutionist in the world till he died a few years back. Harvard University, an agnostic, and he wrote biological arguments for racism increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory by scientists in most nations. So you don't want to believe me, you can argue it out with Stephen Jay Gould. You say, well, that was the 1800s. Well, all the way up into the early 1900s, evolutionists were still doing this. There was a fair that was held in St. Louis, Missouri. They caught this poor pygmy, and they put him in the zoo along with a chimpanzee to show his lack of evolutionary progress. So people could go by and gawk at him like you'd gawk at an animal. This is a picture out of a, a modern-day textbook. It's subtle, but you notice how the skin tone changes from the black of the chimpanzee to the white at the end? The racism's a bit more subtle today, but it's still there. You say, well, maybe that's just the way people thought back in the 1800s. No, not everybody thought that way. In fact, that was when you had William Wilberforce, who was fighting against slavery. You had the missionary David Livingston going to Africa to try to win black people for Christ in the fight against slavery. At the same time, while the reverend Kingsley was saying they didn't have a soul. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. It's despicable and it's based in evolutionary theory. Communism. Karl Marx wanted to dedicate his communist manifesto to Charles Darwin, calling it the basis in natural history of our view. Adolf Hitler. Quote, the German Führers consistently sought to make the practice of Germany conform to the theory of evolution. These guys got credibility because of Darwin's theories. Hitler's book was full of racism. Quote from his book, Mein Kampf, My Struggle, on page 216. No more than nature desires the mating of the weaker with stronger individuals, even less does she desire the blending of higher with lower races. Adolf Hitler would say, we would never, never, never take our good, pure bloodlines of racehorses and go out and just breed them with any mare out there. We'd never do that. Why are we doing that with people? Why are we allowing people that are, are lesser and not as far evolved to produce offspring and pollute the human gene pool? Why do we do that? Now, if you really believe evolutionary theory, you have a hard time arguing against him. He was at least logically consistent. And so... This geneticist, Ludwig Plate, who worked for Adolf Hitler, said this, progress in evolution goes forward over the millions of dead bodies of inferior humans. The key elements of the worldview have been constructed and repeatedly reaffirmed by linguists, racial anthropologists, evolutionary scientists, and geneticists. And of course, the result is a matter of history. of liberal persuasion like to talk about human rights. Where do human rights come from? Well, historically, Western society has derived its belief in the dignity of man from its Judeo-Christian belief that man is in the glory of God, made in his image. According to this view, human rights depend upon the creator who made man with dignity, not upon the state. Why is that important? 
Well, if the state, in its wonderful benevolence, bequeaths you with the human rights, then the state also has the ability to do what? Take them back away again, right? And if you happen to be living in Hitler's Germany, he was happy to do that. Joseph Stalin, at a very early age, while still a pupil at the ecclesiastical school, Comrade Stalin believed or developed a critical mind, revolutionary sentiments, and began to read Darwin and became an atheist. Dictator Stalin killed about 60 to 100 million of his own people. Mao Zedong, when the communists took over China in 1949, they began killing Christians by the thousands. Mao murdered about 45 million of his people. Mao listed Darwin Huxley as his two favorite authors. Charles Darwin himself said this in a letter, looking at the world at no distant date, what an endless number of lower races will have been eliminated by the higher civilized races throughout the world. Folks, we are not talking about people that went, you know, off to the side. This is the core of evolutionary theory as written by Darwin and Huxley and those folks. Well, in the United States, Creation was still taught in the public schools up to the beginning of the 20th century. Then something happened that would change that. Who knows what it was? Scopes Monkey Trials, right? Scopes Monkey Trials in 1925. Here is the actual courthouse where the trial took place. It's all staged. They said, okay, look, you know, you teach it. Uh, Scopes, you teach evolution. I know that's against the law, but then what will happen is we'll sue you, and then we'll have a big parade. It'll be great for the media and for our town. And so for Dayton, Tennessee, uh, this was a big event, right? And they brought in William Jennings Bryant to stand up for the creationists, and they uh, brought in Clarence Darrow, this, you know, uh, agnostic lawyer to stand up, and they had this big hurrah, and who won who won the, the court case? The creationists won, because there was a law. You weren't supposed to teach evolution, so they gave him a nominal fine. But in the court of public opinion, the evolutionists won, because the perception was Clarence Darrow really produced a better argumentation for evolutionary theory. And so that was kind of a watershed in education. And by the 1960s, evolution is very commonplace in biology, chemistry, world history, geology, really through the curriculum. It is pretty common. And uh, for a while, Christians just kind of sat back and kind of took this and just kind of watched the public schools get overwhelmed by evolution. But then in the 1980s, uh, you had the work of uh, Henry Morris, uh, the Genesis Flood book. You had uh, Dwayne Gish. You had the Institute for Creation Research, Creation Research Society. Some of these folks began to get out in the churches and say, hey, we've got to get active. We can't just like, you know, let our public schools become uh, a whole of evolutionary theory. That's bad. So, especially down south in what we call the Bible Belt, there was this pushback. And so the, the, the lawmakers in these different state legislatures began to pass laws, especially Louisiana and Arkansas, called the Equal Treatment Laws. And it was pretty simple. Basically said this. You would teach evolution for an hour, that's fine. But then you got to teach creation for an hour. Fair is fair, right? Now, now, what's the problem with that? I mean, you'd think, okay, the parents are in favor of this, and it is, after all, their kids that are in the schools, and the taxpayers, you know, as a society, as a community, were overwhelmingly in favor of it. I mean, that's why their legislator voted for it. Uh, and, and after all, they're paying the, the, the bills, right? They're, they're the ones picking up the tab for the public schools. So where's the problem with this? But the ACLU and the teachers' unions and the, and the people for the American way and the atheist society, all these guys, they began to fight this thing. And they took it all up to the Supreme Court, and in a landmark case in 1981, uh, the Supreme Court, a case called Edwards versus Aguilard, overturned it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along here, but basically that was the end of the equal treatment laws. Now, the court didn't say you can't teach evolution, or creation rather, but the court said you can't mandate it. 
at a legislative level. So teachers today can still do it. Now I've been in the public schools, I've been in a Concord High multiple times. You can believe it. I've been in Pittsfield. I've been in Laconia. I've been in secular universities. I've been at University of Wyoming. I've been, I've been in lots of secular forums. You know, and the talk's a little different, but I, I can give the talk, right? Teachers can bring you in. But they, they're scared, as a rule, because of threats from the ACLU that they're going to get sued and stuff, this type of thing. But the Supreme Court didn't say you can't teach it. It said you can't mandate it. You can't mandate it from the state level. Now, Hitler said this, let me control the textbooks and I will control the state. You think he's right? Oh, yeah. He, he was wicked, but he was brilliant. Nobody can doubt he was extremely astute. Okay, we've talked about the history of the controversy. I want to talk briefly about the limitations of science and the two-model approach. Limitations of science. I need some help here. Somebody give me a working definition. I like defining terms every time I do a debate. What is science? Hmm? What is science? Yes? The development of a theory and experiments to Ooh, I like this. We got theory, we got a repeatable, we got some great elements coming in here. Somebody else? Yes. Okay, so, so we're getting to the point where it's not something that I saw in my backyard that I, I can't, you know, bring into the laboratory, but here it is, I saw it, you know, well, that's not good enough, right? We have to be able to then have it repeated in the field or in the lab. Anything else? Okay, how about this? Knowledge obtained by the scientific method. I'm, I'm coming, coming around to where you guys are at in just a minute, but knowledge is a body of knowledge obtained by the scientific method. Now what's the scientific method? Some of the stuff we've been talking about, right? You guys remember this observation, the guy's sitting under the tree, right? And the apple falls, and we don't know if it ever happened. It's a great fable. You know, he starts to think about gravity, right? Sir Isaac Newton. And then hypothesis, well, let me, let me go up there, drop the apple again. Let me try dropping it at sea level. Let me try dropping it across the English Channel over there in France. And okay, I've done all these experiments. It seems to hold out. Maybe you're gonna get a law or theory, a general explanation or some facts. And these things become part of that body of knowledge that we call science. Now, if we think about science as a body of knowledge like that, well, we can describe oftentimes, but we can't ultimately explain. Is, is light a particle or is it a wave? Yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, what is gravity? Uh, we can describe it, we can kind of use it. Uh, we don't know, really, at, at a fundamental level. Maybe we'll have ideas, but we just don't know. And so, oftentimes, science is limited to describing, but can't explain. And the science is susceptible to constant revision because of human fallibility. You, you think about these scientists, they put on these white coats and they go into the laboratory. There's still people! They have uh, high preconceptions and they have prejudices and they're fallible and, and they have agendas just like all anybody else. And so it's a fallible exercise. And then this, science is not able to answer moral questions. Science can build an atom bomb, but it can't tell you whether or not to drop it. So there are limitations to science. And the problem is, is that for the secular society, science is as close as we get to a priesthood. And so scientists say, oh, well, then it must be true, right? That's about as close as we get to absolute truth. No, 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 that's not the purpose of science. We're abusing science. Now we're in a scientism, science falsely so-called. So science is at its very core based in faith. Oh, no, 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 I'm not a man of faith. I'm a man of science. Oh, yeah? How do you decide what is science? You're not going to get that from science. 
from repeatability and observation. You're going to get that from philosophy. In fact, we don't, the only way we can even say the world is real and knowable rather than a figment of our imagination is with philosophy. You've got to dig deeper into the toolkit to give a foundation even for science. And that's why science, in the modern sense, sprung out of a Christian worldview. If you just believe that thunder and lightning is because the gods are fighting up there, well then why go out and put a kite up and a key and try to understand what electricity is? It's just the gods fighting. See? But when we have a Christian worldview and we believe in an orderly creator and we have repetition and we have predictability, that's why science grew in a Christian worldview and a Christian culture. And then we have to believe that those laws hold for the past and the future. All these are faith premises. So science ultimately is about workability, not about absolute truth. And when you get that wrong, you've jumped into scientism. It's a religious expression. Does that make sense? So we're back to what God said. It's about bringing the world into control. It's about usefulness and orderliness. It's not about truth. Now here's a question. I want everybody to participate. I'm not going to pick on anybody. But I want to ask you a question. Is creation religion? How many of you say, yes it is? Okay, got several. How many say, no it's not? Okay, I think about maybe 20% participated. Everyone's nervous. It's okay. Again, I think it's important we define our terms. I'm going to define creation as abrupt appearance by design. Abrupt appearance by design. Now, if you understand it that way, lots of religious groups can espouse that, right? Catholics would, Muslims would, Jews would. I, I believe the Hindus probably would. I don't know that much about Hinduism. So there are philosophical assumptions that come with creation. It would be difficult to be an atheist if, if, if we really could scientifically prove creation. But that's no different than the evolutionary baggage that comes along. Remember all that stuff that happened because evolution really got going with Charles Darwin, right? He had all those moral issues and things that came out of that. And so one could teach about a fine-tuned universe not coming out of an explosion or the failure of spontaneous generation of life from non-life or the abrupt appearance and gaps in the fossil record. We'll talk about all those things. I don't want to dwell on them now, but we will talk about those things. Designs in biology without discussing a religion. And I do in public schools. That's what I do when I go in. I, I don't bring up Christianity. They're waiting for it. They're, you know, they're waiting for it. I don't. I talk about design, the evidence for design, the science for design. And I get all done. Invariably, somebody says, uh, so, so what are you? Are you, are you a Christian? I'm like, well, seems how you asked. You know? <laughs> I have a chance to share my testimony. But I mean, we can just talk about design and creation without any reference to religion. Does that make sense? You, you following me? Now, how about this? Let's flip the coin the other way. If everybody could participate, I just feel so good about it. Is evolution science? How many say yes? How many say no? All right, we got about 45, 50%. We're making real progress. That's, that's good. I'm feeling better. Uh, let's define our terms. I'm going to define evolution as molecules to man transformation. Now, this is important. I do debates with evolutionists. You've got to define in terms. You can hardly find two evolutions that will agree on the definition of evolution. So it's real important you define it. Listen, they want to make it like variations in a gene pool. That was observed long before Grandpa Charlie Darwin came along. Okay, everybody agrees on it. And then they want to just make it so like you're stupid if you don't believe in evolution. Well, wait a minute. We don't have an origins debate then. Because unless you can get from molecules to man, you need a creation account somewhere then. If you want to be an alternative to creation in the origins debate, you've got to get all the way, 
right? We've got to get from the Big Bang all the way. It's got to be goo to UV the zoo, the whole shoot and match. Right? Or else we need to have a creator somewhere along the way. So molecules to man transformation. Now that is not testable by the scientific method. Uh, madam, can I please come to your laboratory and see a Big Bang tomorrow? Can we, sir, go to your laboratory or someplace in the field and observe non-life becoming life, rocks and water becoming something living, a living cell? Uh, no. It's not observable, it's not repeatable, it's not testable, it is not science. Much of evolutionary theory's metaphysical assumptions, philosophical positions, even survival of the fittest, the core of Charles Darwin's theory is a tautology. That is the only way to define fitness is by watching what survives. A guy named Sir Karl Popper said this, science is vulnerable to falsification. If you can't falsify it, it's not science. It turns out there's no way you can falsify evolution. This guy's pretty important. This is Michael Ruse. Edwards versus Aguilar, Supreme Court. He was the key witness, the star witness for evolution in saying, well, we can't have evolution, or star, star witness saying we can't have creation taught in our schools because it would establish a religion. He was a philosopher of science. Well, guess what? In 2005, he did a 180, 25 years later, and he wrote this. In particular, I argue that in both evolution and creation, we have rival religious responses to a crisis of faith. Rival stories of origins, rival judgments about the meaning of human life, rival sets of moral dictates, and above all, what theologians call rival eschatologies, pictures of the future and what lies ahead for humankind. Oh, he got a lot of hate mail. Because he's saying evolution is religious. That was a no-no. Well, how about this idea of separation of church and state? Well, this does not appear anywhere in the Constitution. It was written, uh, the idea of separation of church and state was written by Thomas Jefferson to a letter to a Baptist pastor. And the idea of separation of church and state came from the Baptists in Rhode Island. And it was supposed to keep the government from running the church. That was the idea of it. I mean, the U.S. Constitution says Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the actual law. Remember the, the same guys that wrote the Constitution, wrote the Declaration of Independence, says we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. So would they have not wanted creation taught in their schools? It's absurd to think that. Absolutely not. Okay, my time's running short, having too much fun here, but let's see if we can wrap things up by talking about the two-model approach. So how would I like to see it taught in the schools? I think both creation and evolution should be taught not as hard science, but philosophies not being observed today. The best approach is to be able to present the evidence for both, see which is more reasonable. Again, not hard science, but we have models that we can put together. And from here on out, I'm going to be talking about every week, week by week, these two models. Origin by design versus natural origin, decreasing order versus increasing order, catastrophe, we talked about the beginning, versus gradualism. I'm going to give you evidence for the two models from here on in. That's what we're going to focus on. I think both models should be taught in school. Here's Cornell evolutionist William Provine. Dr. Provine says this, I have a suggestion for evolutionists. Include the discussion of supernatural origins in your classes. The exclusionism you promote is painfully self-serving and smacks of elitism. Why are you afraid of confronting supernatural creationism believed by the majority of persons in the USA and perhaps worldwide 
Shouldn't students be encouraged to express their beliefs about origins in a class discussing origins by evolution? Great, great quote. I absolutely agree with evolutionist William Provine. What are the Darwinists afraid of? They think their fairy tale will not stand up to some competition. Say, well, Dave, that's not very nice. You call it a fairy tale. I actually think it's a really good description of evolutionary theory. You remember the story we talked about at the beginning, the frog, and he's sitting on a lily pad, and then along comes the beautiful princess, and she kisses the frog, and the frog turns into the handsome prince. Now that is a fairy tale for children. Frog plus the magic ingredient, kiss, is the prince. Here's evolution. It's a fairy tale for grown-ups. Frog plus time equals a prince. The magic ingredient just changed, but it's the same result. Here is a textbook, and you see the frog, and there's the prince. It just takes enough time. Here's Jean Ronsat. He said, evolution is a fairy tale for grown-ups. He's a member of the French Academy of Sciences. Henry G. says, you can line up fossils and you can make a story about them, but it's the same assertion as a bedtime story. It's amusing, perhaps even instructive, but not scientific. National opinion, 86% of Americans believe creation should be taught alongside evolution in the schools today. Even lawyers, bless their hearts, say that it should happen. Here's Stephen Jay Gould. He says, no statute exists in any state to bar instruction in creation science. It could be taught before and it can be taught now. Now the Supreme Court actually said you can teach a variety of theories on the origins of mankind to school children for the secular intent of enhancing the effectiveness of science instruction. So it is allowed and I think it should be done. Here's my conclusion. Public schools should not be the forums of religious presentation, secular humanism included. However, there are two legitimate models of origins that can be presented without establishing a religion. Besides, we should not teach error simply because the truth might have moral implications. All the scientific evidence supporting both creation and evolution should be presented so students can reach their own conclusions. True science and true learning demand nothing less. Okay. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for your attention. I've moved fast, but we've gotten through. Lord, thank you for this time this morning. I pray we'd use the minds you've given us, that we would be able, prepared to stand up and give a defense. I think of our, our public schools and how they've been turned into these mouthpieces for indoctrination. And Lord, I just pray against this wickedness that's taken over. We see the corruption that comes from teaching that people are just animals, that certain kinds of people have no soul. Lord, this is just astounding, uh, horrible, terrible consequences for this type of thing. And Lord, I pray that we would learn from history and we would learn the benefits of teaching the truth of your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.